Welcome to First Words, a podcast presented by the First United Methodist Church of Florence. Today's message is brought to you by Senior Pastor Reverend Dale Cohen. Today we're continuing our series on connection. Last week I discussed our need for a connection with God and the importance of being rooted in Jesus Christ. And this week, though, I'm going to be focusing on the barriers that we face in finding a relationship with God and in connecting with others. We have competing needs that get in the way of our ability to connect. We crave connection. However, as strong as that need for connection is, there is a competing need for us to feel in control to avoid vulnerability. Attempting to control others sabotages our relationships, including our relationship with God, resulting in sin that destroys relationships. So, yes, today I'm going to be talking about sin, everybody's favorite subject. Well, Sin, the way I want to define it for us today, is any behavior that violates the boundaries of healthy relationships. Boundaries provide safety. They set the appropriate behavioral limits, and when we exceed or we violate those limits, what we do is we sin. Think about the yellow line at the center of most roads. It's a boundary indicating where we can drive and where we can't. We're supposed to stay to the right of the yellow line, and the oncoming traffic is supposed to stay in their lane. And if we operate within that agreed-upon boundary, then we safely share the road without any problems. But accidents can happen when there is no yellow line or when someone crosses over the yellow line. And and unfortunately, sometimes people get hurt. Crossing the yellow line is equivalent to sinning because sin is crossing the line in relationships, creating an unhealthy or an unsafe situation. Jesus knew the destructive power of sin, and so he wanted us to understand it as fully as possible so that we could avoid the impacts of sin. Jesus was often at odds with the Pharisees regarding holy living. The Pharisees devoted themselves to a life of righteousness by adhering strictly to the Ten Commandments and to the 613 interpretations of the original Ten Commandments. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is saying a very bold statement here that he did not come to abolish or do away with the law, but rather he came to fulfill the law, to put an exclamation point on the law, to show us just what is important about the law. He taught us this. Sin is not just in what we do, but also in what we desire in our hearts. The limits of the law, that is, it's, it's unable to touch the depths of our hearts. It's one thing to avoid specific behaviors, but outwardly changing our behavior doesn't do anything about the problem of sin in our lives because sin resides not in our actions, but it resides in our hearts. We have to deal with our innermost desires and motives. And Jesus explained it like this, again in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus' point here is simple. There is the law. But then there's also the spirit of the law, which is always about keeping us connected to God and connected to each other. As important as it is to make a law against taking another person's life, that law can't begin to address the anger and the hatred that brews in, a, in the human heart that can then cause one to commit murder. Jesus says that even though we may not physically kill someone, if we have hateful feelings in our hearts, we've already committed murder. The intention to harm is the exact same sin as the physical act itself. Jesus offered a similar definition of adultery. Just because we avoid the physical act of adultery doesn't mean that we're not guilty of adultery because lustful thoughts are just as evil as lustful actions. So, what Jesus is trying to help us to see is that sin is more than what we do. It's what we hold in our hearts. Changing our behavior without changing our hearts does nothing to free us from sin. You can keep the law. If you could keep the law, you can keep the law, but that does not mean you are free from sin. Strict adherence to the law only creates a system of self-righteousness based on outward appearances, while Jesus expects us to deal with the root source of sin within our hearts. So then, he also teaches that even if we could eradicate sin in our lives, we still need God's grace. We can't earn our salvation. And the only antidote for our sin is God's saving grace. While we need to continue 
to do everything we can to eradicate sin from our lives. The reality is that we'll never achieve sinlessness. At the end of our best efforts, we will still need the grace of God. Remember, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the best of the best. They knew the law backwards and forwards, and they, they drilled each other on the law and practiced carrying out the law as best as anybody could. They were the best of the best. But Jesus said, but they're not good enough not to save themselves. The Scripture goes on to say, in the words of Paul, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one shows kindness. There is not even one. No one is righteous, is what the Scripture teaches. We all need the gift of grace that God gives through His Son, Jesus Christ. In Colossians, our reading that Emily shared just a moment ago, Paul says, So, if you have been raised with Christ, and the implication here is that, yes, we have been raised with Christ, then we seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, the Scripture says, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. To understand the standard of righteousness set by Jesus, we need to look to Him as the true example of holiness not to the self-righteous behavior of others. When Paul says that we are hidden in Christ, what he's referring to is how Jesus keeps us safe from all that which seeks to kill or destroy us. Like it says in John 10.10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus hides us as God's treasure from that which would seek to destroy us. But then, Jesus, when it comes time to be judged, pulls us out, of the cov- out from under the covering of His grace and presents us before God as a part of Him and His righteousness. We're hidden until it comes time for our lives to be revealed. But instead of our lives being revealed at the judgment, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in our stead. Jesus' sinlessness, not ours, saves us. Again, Paul in Ephesians said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, not the result of keeping the commandments, 
not the result of being the very best. No, that's not what, it, what gets us there. And the reason it doesn't get us there is so that no one may boast. Well, then Jesus goes on to say that our sinfulness is rooted in a heart that is unable or maybe unwilling to love. Remember the lawyer who came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is actually like two sides of the same coin. There are two commandments. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So, according to Jesus, the greatest commandment is the combination of the commandment to love God and the commandment to love others. And if we sin when we fail to keep God's commandments, then we can assume that sin is rooted in our unwillingness to love God and to love others. Sin emerges from an, a heart that is unable or unwilling to love, and the lack of love destroys relationships. It gets in the way of that connection that we need. So we must cultivate love to counteract sin in our lives. Jesus clarifies that sin isn't wrong because it's bad in and of itself. God didn't create anything evil. What we do is we take what God created as good and make it into evil. Adultery is a great example. Within the context of a healthy relationship, sexual intimacy is a gift from God. But when we take that outside of the realm of healthy relationship, then we make it evil. God didn't make sex evil. We do that. So, the antidote to sin is not to stop being bad and start being good. The antidote is to learn to let the love of God wash over us so that we know what the love of God feels like, and it inspires us to want to share that experience of love with others so that they can experience through us the gift of God's grace and love. That way, when we're tempted to do unloving things, the love of Jesus compels us instead to respond in the most loving way. Sin is not a failure to follow the rules. It's a failure to embody the loving thing to do. Sin is a relational issue. And so consequently, sin can only be dealt with in the context of a loving relationship. And that's why we're saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're saved in that relationship because He offers us His perfect love that casts out fear, that covers us with His grace, and that restores us in a good relationship with God. He does that on our behalf. 
The grace of Jesus resolves the consequences of sin in our relationship with God. However, when it comes to the unloving things that we do to one another, we've got to take responsibility for that. We've got to figure out how to reconcile and make amends as needed. If I sin against you, although God will forgive me for that, the person from whom I need forgiveness the most, though, is you. And so, I have to find a way to deal with that. And because forgiving one another is complicated, it's best to try to avoid having to ask for forgiveness in the first place by doing the right thing all along. In my marriage to Anne, I know that the less I do that I need to ask forgiveness for, the better the relationship. Well, that's true in every relationship. The less we do that we need to be forgiven of, the better the relationship. And there are three steps that I think we can follow. First, we need to really affirm that love is the antidote to our sinfulness. Paul, in our scripture again for today, says, Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which he says is idolatry. Paul indicates that what is lethal within us, that which destroys us, that malignancy in us must be put to death so that we can live in healthy relationships. So, putting sexual immorality and purity and passion to death means seeing the other person who catches our eye not as an object, but as a beloved child of God who deserves only the best we have to offer, not the worst. Love demands that we respect their commitments and we respect our commitments. Putting aside momentary pleasure to gain the more permanent fulfillment of honoring our obligations and experiencing the fulfillment of following through on our commitments. This is the loving thing to do. And it prevents the damage that doing the unloving thing creates. Putting greed to death means giving in a way that shows that we love generosity more than materialism and wealth. We choose to share with others rather than just accumulating more and more for ourselves. Instead of using our money to control others or to soothe our inadequate feelings, we use our money to demonstrate the overwhelming graciousness and generosity of God. We live out the life of God by being generous, the God who has been generous to us. Doing the loving thing is so important. In 1 Peter, we're reminded, above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. But not only do we need to let love be the antidote, but then we need to leave behind the old ways of doing things. Unfortunately, we'll never put our sinful ways 
completely to death. However, if we want to connect deeply with others, then we must continually strive to live that new life of love that Jesus came to show us how to live. The old ways of selfishly serving our pleasures don't work. So, Paul says, on account of these sins of an unloving heart, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you followed when you were living that old life. What Paul is saying here is that sin has its consequences. It destroys relationships. It hurts other people, and it hurts us too. We miss out if we're living life in the old way, on the benefits of a life lived where we're more loving and faithful to the ways of God, which is the life we were designed to live. Our unwillingness to love others as God loves us stirs His wrath because God's anger is always directed at anything that diminishes our lives. When we sin, God isn't angry with us. God is angry that we've made a choice that diminishes our lives. But God's desire is for us to regain our footing and to find the benefits of the new life, the new way of doing things. Scripture says, but now you must get rid of all such things, these old life kinds of things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices, there's that old life, and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. We are trying to take on a new life that resembles more the life that we were designed to live, having been created in the image of God. Before we entered this new life in Jesus, though, it may be that anger and wrath consumed us and dominated our lives. We may have disregarded others, rejecting them as God's beloved, speaking maliciously about them, and slandering them as if we were somehow better than them. We belittled them and spoke disparagingly about them with evil intent in our hearts. We lied, we spread rumors, but all that was before we were baptized, before we were born again, before we were made a new creation in Christ Jesus. As Paul reminds us, so if anyone is in Christ, and again the implication is you are, they are a new creation. Everything old has passed away. What this says is that we're different than we were before. We don't live by the same values, the same standards, the same behaviors. We become a new creation. We take on different behavior, behavior that reflects the transforming power of God's love. And this is important because once we claim new life in Christ, if we continue doing things the old way, then we're letting unbelievers get the idea that God approves 
of those kinds of things, and God does not. We must embody love for all people, even those we consider enemies. And then finally, we must abandon the boundaries that God has already erased. When we become a new creation through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer see the world through the lens of division. That's the ways of the world. We see everyone as God's beloved. Paul said, in that renewal of the self in Jesus, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved and free, but Christ is all and in all. What this means is that Christ is in you and Christ is in me. And what we have to be able to do is to see Christ in each other. And rather than respond to the human that we see, we respond to the Jesus that we see in them. And that makes all the difference in how we interact with one another. Christ is in all, Paul said. Among the different people that Paul lists as part of the congregation at Colossae, it might be easy to miss this, but he says that there were Scythians. Scythians migrated from the north shore of the Black Sea. They were crude, cruel, and uncultured people. They were hard to get along with. It wouldn't surprise me if everybody in the church at Colossae thought, well, I know we're supposed to love them, but it sure would be nice if we were able to love them while they were back in Scythia. They were that different. They were that uh, challenging to be with. Nevertheless, this diverse group of believers not only accepted each other, but they accepted the Scythians as they sang, prayed, and worshiped together around the Lord's table, trying to keep their differences from getting in the way of the work that God had called them to do. Paul assured them the only way that they could stay together was to put Jesus in the center of the church. And every time they gathered together to celebrate the love and the grace that is ours because Jesus is the center of the church. Paul said in a couple of verses beyond the scripture that Emily read, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Everything. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts 
to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Another thing that you may miss in the second to the last sentence in that passage is Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ rules everywhere except if you're unwilling for the peace of Christ to rule in you. Paul says we must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. This passage is Paul's instructions for how we, as different as we may be, can coexist in God's church and keep from sinning against each other. He says it's simple. Forgive and do the loving thing. Forgive and love. Just as God forgives and loves us, we must also forgive and love each other. Now, in closing, I just want to say a brief word about church unity. Because there's a lot of talk about division in the United Methodist Church as a denomination. And what I want to affirm to you is that the 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 center of who we are as Christians is found in the creeds of the ancient church. The Apostles' Creed that we do here each and every week and the Nicene Creed, which we use on Trinity Sunday when we teach on the Trinity, these are the core tenets of what we believe. That is the orthodox belief of the Christian church. And they've been around for centuries. In every other regard, on every other matter, we need to heed Paul's advice where he said, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He doesn't say, argue with one another and fight until you've proven that you're right and everybody else is wrong. That's not in here. He says we're to be humble, to approach each other with humility. When you and I disagree on something, my default position is you may be right. I may be wrong. But it's also my default position that I may be right and you may be wrong. But because I'm willing to believe that I could be wrong, I will treat you with greater respect and love than if I'm bound and determined to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. That's sin because we're driving a wedge in the relationship. That's the unloving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to listen and learn and share and if need be, forgive, but always to love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to First Words. 
For more information about our services or how to get involved in our community, visit us at fumcflorence.org or facebook.com slash florencefumc.